Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that is straight killing them with kindness. And we are also joined by author Chavisa Woods. Hello. Woo! Yay. <laughs> Chavisa is an author whose work confronts the intersections of poverty, queerness, and whiteness with a particular focus on rural life in the U.S. Her newest book is a collection of short stories titled Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country. Her previous books include a queer epic called The Albino Album and Love Does Not Make Me Gentle or Kind a collection of short stories published by Autonomy Media in 2012. We are so damn excited to have her on the show. Yes. <laughs> totally. We'll be discussing her newest book, Things to Do When You Are Goth in the Country, towards the end of the hour. This week, we were inspired to profile and discuss two amazing authors, Ursula Le Guin and Lorraine Hansberry. So first, mm-hmm. a bit about Lorraine Hansberry. She was an amazing writer and just an all-around incredible human being. Notably, she was the first black female author to have a play performed on Broadway, Raisin in the Sun, probably her most well-known work, which is a play highlighting the lives of black Americans living under racial segregation in Chicago. Her family had struggled against segregation, challenging a restrictive covenant, and eventually provoking the Supreme Court case Hansberry v. Lee. So she started out in Chicago and then moved to New York City, where she worked at the pan-Africanist newspaper Freedom, alongside Paul mm. Robeson and other contemporaries. Amazing. Totally amazing. She worked... <laughs> <laughs> um, also alongside W.E.B. Du Bois. I can never say that. Du Bois, du Bois. I think. Du Bois. Thank you. Yes. I didn't want to say that name because I can't. It just like gives me anxiety every time I have to say it publicly. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> So she worked super hard as an author and an activist, but unfortunately she only lived to be 34 and she passed away from cancer. She reportedly inspired Nina Simone's song to be young, gifted, and black. Mm. So we know from her writings and all some of her interviews as well that she was definitely radical politically. She went to the University of Wisconsin in the late 40s and joined the Communist Party through the medium of the Henry Wallace campaign. And interestingly, it's this information about her has been largely buried in the mainstream. And I think both in pop culture and in schools, we see that her mm. radical political history is almost never mentioned i also thought it was interesting that although she was married to a man for most of her life it seems to have been largely non-romantic she later dated women and also contributed letters to queer publications and i pulled a quote out here she writes i think it's about time that equipped women begin to take on some of the ethical questions which a male-dominated culture has produced There may be women to emerge who will be able to formulate a new and possible concept that homosexual persecution and condemnation has at its roots not only social ignorance, but a philosophically active anti-feminist dogma. Yes, I was going to pull that quote as well. It's really, really an amazing take. And in a related way, I... Just watch the film Battle of the Sexes, where Emma Stone plays this woman, Billie Jean King, who was a famous tennis player and played tennis against this misogynistic guy and won. And it did a lot for women's lib at the time. It was it was all based on a on a true story. But she was battling her own struggle at home because she was married to a man and also identified as a lesbian. Her husband continued to be with her and like actually supported her through that process until she felt comfortable getting a divorce and coming out. So this specific experience also says something about certain types of men who will stay with a woman even though the romantic part of their relationship has ended. And that whole dynamic is really interesting to me. I also thought it was really interesting that her husband was white. I mean, this was definitely during a time when interracial marriages were still very taboo and even prohibited a lot of places. And even in New York City, I think it was still somewhat taboo at the time. So it's Mm. interesting to me that her husband would want to marry her and be there for her. And it seems like from the interviews I've heard that he was really committed to supporting her and helping to make sure she had the time and the support to do her writing. And I just thought that was Mm. a really nice example of allyship. Yeah, absolutely. 
they seem to have had a lot of admiration and respect for each other. And she actually stayed married to him almost to the end of her life, even though she was Mm. seeing other people. So that's pretty damn progressive. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So now we're going to pivot a little bit and do a little background on Ursula Le Guin, who is our second author we're profiling on the show today. Uh, Le Guin just passed away on January 22nd of this year. She was best known for her amazing body of work, including children's books, short stories, poems, and essays, mainly in the science fiction realm. Her writing touches on a lot of really interesting themes, including politics, the natural world, gender, religion, and sexuality. For me personally, I love that there's so much diversity in her work. The majority of her main characters are people of color, a choice that she said was made to reflect the non-white majority of humans. She also uses alien cultures to examine structural characteristics of human culture and society and their impact on the individual. I love this quote. Anything at all can be said to happen in the future without fear of contradiction from a native. The future is a safe, sterile laboratory for trying out ideas in a means of thinking about reality, a method. Yeah. Before we did this episode, I, and I think it's really interesting because with authors, you often don't know unless there's like a picture in the back or whatever. I did not know that Ursula Le Guin was white. I mean, I guess I didn't really think about her race. And so, which is like maybe one of my own like shortcomings of thinking about her work. But when I was originally thinking about this, I wondered whether we could consider her work in the Afrofuturism genre. But I think that like it would be more like Afrofuturism adjacent, uh, perhaps, or at least like touching upon themes that Afrofuturism also touches upon. And just because I think particularly when places have been so ravaged by colonialism, it lends itself to these really futuristic um, sci-fi anti-capitalist works. And um, I think that her work does that really well. And a lot of good sci-fi and fantasy is so good because it strikes a nerve. And what I mean by that is when we think about a fantasy book, even if it's something as mainstream as The Hunger Games, it hits a chord with a lot of people because there are really intense parallels to our reality. Mm -hmm. In that example, we have examples of extreme wealth inequality, which is a common theme within the sci-fi fantasy realm, Mm -hmm. and also examples of extreme and pointless exploitation and violence, Mm -hmm. where the wealthy are unharmed and the rest act as pawns in a larger game. And that's All to say that I think futuristic narratives are so compelling because of what it says about today's society, and authors can have a lot of freedom and creativity through that medium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to me, the question of how this overlaps kind of with Afrofuturism uh, is a really interesting and compelling one. After thinking about this and listening to you talk about it, I think, one, I think the fact that she's not Black and not not writing from a black perspective makes it harder to argue that this is Afrofuturism. Um, it mm-hmm. seems to me like from what she said about it that she's really, you know, more more almost like an anthropologist or a scientist where she's like, hey, the, the world is a really diverse place. Science fiction should reflect that diversity because that's how the world is. And I think Afrofuturism specifically incorporates elements of black history and culture and uses mm. uses that as the building block for creating sci-fi that expands on those ideas. So it's kind yes. of a subtle distinction, but I think it's a really interesting thing to think about. Absolutely. So although she didn't call herself an anarchist, although it sounds like from what you're saying, Chitty, so maybe she, that's kind of debatable. Right. Like I said, there's a quote that you sent me where she says that she didn't necessarily call herself an anarchist, but she wanted to explore Mm -hmm. ideas of anarchism in her writing. Um, Mm -hmm. There are a few interviews, and one in particular I just read where she said she didn't call herself an anarchist because she didn't believe that she deserved that honor. But then the Mm -hmm. interviewer asked her, do you mind if I refer to you as an anarchist? And she said, I would be honored. Because she Mm -hmm. thought anarchism is something you have to act upon pretty frequently, and she didn't think she had done enough to call herself an anarchist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I would disagree with. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think she is, yeah. (laughs) I think she's done plenty. Yes. Yeah. 
And I know she she said that democracy is good, but it isn't the only way to achieve justice and a fair share. And I've been thinking about this a lot, um, especially as a DSA member. And it's something I've struggled with in the DSA because I agree with her. And I think that we can see how easily true democracy can get corrupted. And I think that we can argue that true democracy has probably never existed And the way that she illustrates an alternative, particularly in books like The Dispossessed, is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. She's also quoted as saying, The Dispossessed is an anarchist utopian novel. Its ideas come from the pacifist anarchist tradition. So did some of the ideas of the so-called counterculture of the 60s and 70s. And some of our Occupy comrades might remember that there were shields created with the book's cover on them. And she's definitely been kind of an icon to activists. I think personally that sci-fi gave Le Guin a safe place to explore the application of anarchism. And I think this also exposed a more mainstream audience to those ideals. But it seems like you can conclude from things she said in later interviews that she was at least hesitant to call herself an anarchist, um, as we discussed earlier. Regardless, she was definitely interested in exploring it as a concept through her writing. Yeah, and I think what Chavisa was saying earlier about it not her not feeling like she can call herself that, and well, also I think we're all in agreement that that's ridiculous because she has done enough, but I think that people in general, not her understanding of it, but people in general, I feel like are hesitant to call themselves an anarchist because they have a larger misunderstanding and see a misrepresentation of anarchism in mainstream culture and society because Mm -hmm. I think that she certainly had anarchist leading leanings and I think it's really clear in the way that she talks about anarchism that she was really influenced by Emma Goldman who if y'all don't know Emma Goldman she's one of the most badass anarchist feminists of the turn of the 20th century and uh, you should read her (laughs) absolutely I think that's a good point a lot of people are hesitant to call themselves anarchists I think because it's been greatly misrepresented, both by people who call themselves anarchists and also by the mainstream media. And it kind of gets conflated with the sort of punk rock nihilism. Mm. And people sort of think anarchism is complete lack of rules and lack of order. And it's actually extremely orderly. And often there are a lot of rules that everyone has to sort of agree to. Right. Um, it's just a lack of hierarchy. It's like when you're an anarchist, actually, one of Ursula K. Le Guin's, one of my favorite quotes of her um, recently that I, you know, I've seen and I've shared and I've read is she said, an anarchist is one who chooses and accepts the responsibility of choice. Mm. And then when I think I even shared that and I realized when I was sharing it that a lot of people might not know what this means as related to anarchism because they think of anarchism as like, again, like punks smashing windows or just people kind of running (laughs) in the streets. But what anarchism is actually about is like, we're not going to adhere to the power of a hierarchical order of arbitrary bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. I think in the society, I see a lot of people doing things that are horrendous, for instance, um, in a lot of institutions like jails, you know, people Mm. just sort of do things. and, And also even in work situations or in corporate situations, I see a lot of people doing things that they know are extremely unethical or inhumane. Mm -hmm. because they are they're like well the person above me you know or the rule above me has told me I had to do this and they feel like they have no choice or agency and I feel like that goes all the way up the line to the top to it's always been done this way right you know I would also say that Shirley Jackson's story the lottery is in some way an anarchist story because it's about people just following this hierarchical order and following these old Mm -hmm. set of rules and never making a choice for themselves or accepting their their responsibility to have their own morality or their own agency. And that's really what anarchism is about. Totally. Yeah, I think we see a lot of that explored in The Dispossessed, which is a book that I really loved um, and was a reaction to the Vietnam War. The book is still circulated in activist communities, but Le Guin said since writing it that implementing an anarchist society would be impossible in practice, saying that It was a lovely thing to follow through in a novel as an intellectual framework for a book, which is really what anarchism was to me, a way of thinking, a way of imagining, but not a belief. Yeah, I have a couple different thoughts on this. One is you don't think that anything is possible in practice. Like, I don't know. So that I I guess like I disagree with that general framework of thinking about 
how society can exist because I think one of the most impossible challenges of our time is even imagining what a post-capitalist society will look like. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoy that like here she's totally making a nod to Emma Goldman and Emma Goldman really talks about anarchism being about freeing your mind from any hierarchical structure structures that could impede it from thinking the most freely. So she talked about it in terms of religion and in terms of government and in terms of a lot of other things that could inhibit the way you even think and process things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I also I take it a step further. I guess I'm an anarchist Marxist, so I really think about the material, like real life applications of things. And I, yes. I think, you know, it's not just a belief system and it's not not a belief system, but it's actually a way of living with others. Mm. And I do think it's possible. I've done it. I've lived in anarchist collectives all over the country and been part of anarchist movements and anarchist structures that have worked really well. And I would, you know, anytime anyone says, oh, communism doesn't work except on paper, anarchism doesn't work except on paper, I always ask them, does capitalism work? What do you mean by work? What is it working for? Yeah, right? (laughs) Exactly. Because it fucking doesn't. We're destroying the entire planet. (laughs) Right. And if you see these videos, I'll give you just some small examples of people acting anarchistically. If you see a video of a, per, of a cop taking a child and like slamming them against the ground and putting, you know, their hands behind their back and continuing to like get the taser ready to tase them. And then some of these videos that are circulated online, you see adults or other people around step in and try to stop the cops from doing this horrible thing. Mm. That's anarchism because you're saying even though you have the authority, even in, in the hierarchical setup, setup that's happening, I know right now that what you're doing is wrong. And even yes. though I don't have the authority, I'm going to step in within my own agency and my own volition and feel the responsibility to be a moral, ethical person and, and try to stop you. That's yes. anarchism. Yes. That's an incredible example. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And Laura, you touched on environmental issues and how they relate to this. And I found an interesting quote that I wanted to share from Le Guin, from the essay Ursula K. Le Guin on the, on the Future of the Left. She says, What all political and social thinking has finally been forced to face is, of course, the irreversible degradation of the environment by unrestrained industrial capitalism, the enormous fact of which science has been trying for 50 years to convince us while technology provided us ever greater distractions from it. All we have, we've taken from the earth, and taking with ever-increasing speed and greed, we now return little but what is sterile or poisoned. Yes. I think that environmental themes are what make sci-fi fantasy really compelling also. Um, It's really common in sci-fi and fantasy, particularly in any book that takes place in the future. We generally see a largely degraded environment and folks trying to deal with that degradation. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a quick music break and we will come back soon.
we're back. <laughs> yes. So as I was thinking about the juxtaposition of these two authors, it struck me that Lorraine Hansberry was a self-identified communist, and it seems like her political beliefs really informed a lot of her writing, and that she saw writing as the best way to specifically move the needle on things, sort of that writing was a form of activism for her. But she's not widely known as a radical leftist, while Ursula Le Guin could be called kind of a left icon. And people have really just assumed that she was a radical leftist, even though there were some conflicting statements about her personal beliefs. And it seems like they evolved over time, too. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was kind of interesting to see that the, the public perception of those two authors and how they were different. Yeah, and I think, and maybe this is like genreist or something, but mm -hmm. I think generally playwrights are far less known than fiction writers. I feel like we don't know who wrote many of the modern plays and musicals of our time other than Lin-Manuel Miranda, who people picked up on with Hamilton. But I really feel like if we were to be like, hey, who wrote, like, I don't know, whatever, XYZ play, I feel like people would have a much harder time identifying that than mm -hmm. an author. I think that might generally be true, but Hansberry in particular was a pretty high profile icon, particularly like the company she was keeping at the time, the, you know, into a movie. Mm -hmm. I've, I've definitely learned about her a lot in school. So I think she's kind of an exception to that. Although I do think it's probably generally true about playwrights. Yeah. I sort of wondered if maybe the fact that she used a really shockingly familiar story to communicate her lefty ideas as part of the reason that she's not widely remembered as an activist, mm. because she was telling us a very personal family story um, in a way that was super intimate. And a lot of the early audiences for the play went because they felt like it was something about their own lives that they were able to see on stage. So I, I was just thinking maybe that it seem less it makes it harder to see the radical politics behind that story being told mm. um, but with sci-fi maybe it's easier to see it right maybe if people really identify with the story and they're not themselves radical leftists they actually feel more comfortable mm -hmm. identifying with the story not thinking of the writer as a radical leftist totally yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah totally i do think there's a racial component to it too there's definitely a whitewashing that happens with black activists like you know you can look at martin luther king jr to see how his socialist values are watered down i recently visited the african-american museum in dc and was pretty upset to see how many radical activists were being portrayed in a super watered down way with none of their radical ideas particularly around economics and class being mentioned so it's sort of like everybody yeah. who's an activist is a black activist and that's like the single issue um they just wanted like racial equality mm. and we know that that's not true yeah. so i think it's kind of a miracle that this pbs documentary was able to really explore a lot of this yeah i mean it's really common and disastrous i had the same experience when i went to the native american museum in dc as well like just totally didn't talk about anything other than specific native american racial issues yeah and i thought it was interesting that the fbi concluded that the ideas presented in a raisin in the sun were dangerous and subversive and yet when we talk about it even now when people talk about it it's in a very narrow way and it really just focuses on that one specific family and their story instead of the whole system that she was trying to shed light on. Yes. Right. I think what the mainstream, though, thinks is palatable to larger audiences is definitely not issues that deal with class or as poverty as historical. And mm -hmm. I, I personally have done some writing about this and believe that that's sometimes a subconscious and sometimes a very conscious effort to keep poor white people from identifying all poverty as historical mm. Um, mm. because if they identified black poverty as historical they would have to admit that slavery still has an impact on um, mm -hmm. black families and black people today they would have to confront their own racism and their own racism also keeps them from identifying their own poverty as historical and believing that even though their families have been poor for generations and generations that they are someday going to be rich right mm -hmm. Well, I'm so glad you talked about your writing because that's what we're going to talk about now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> yeah. So thanks again for joining us. It's been amazing to have you sit in on this conversation. We would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're from, all the good or possibly bad stuff. 
Cool. Um, yeah, I was born and raised in a small farm town of about 1,200 people. That's just over 1,000 people in southern Illinois. Mm. And, you know, it's a very conservative, very religious area. Um, 70% of the county where I'm from voted for Trump, and I think 10% voted for Gary Johnson. So that's <laughs> mm-hmm. 80% wow. of the voters did not vote for Hillary for short. What's really sad to me, though, is when I was there before the primaries, everyone I spoke with, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, and Independents, weirdly loved Bernie Sanders. Yes. Which was shocking to me. Mm -hmm. I Mm. thought that I was going to be getting in arguments with people, and I didn't actually end up getting in arguments until I visited after the primaries. And and I know a lot of Democrats, even in the area, who didn't Mm -hmm. vote because they didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton, which was strange to me, but that's how it is. So, yeah, it's a very conservative area. Totally. And mm-hmm. a lot of this book is about that. Even though I've lived in New York for the last 15 years, I just keep writing about mostly about these rural characters. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the, the new collection is called Things to Do When You Are Goth in the Country. Curious how you came up with the name and what inspired this collection. The name is the title of the titular story in the book. And I think that actually came mm-hmm. from a night of drinking with friends and someone who I'm actually not friends with anymore weirdly I was telling some horrible story from my childhood as I do sometimes when I've had a drink um and sort of holding court it was a very very dark bleak story and my friend to sort of lighten the mood just said ah that's what happens when you're goth in the country <laughs> oh man <laughs> and I kept that's amazing about it and I wrote this story and I thought about all the things that I did when I was a goth kid in the country and I wrote this story called things to do when you're goth in the country and then it just sort of, you know, took on a life of its own. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> that is so amazing. <laughs> oh. My partner grew up in a in between Wisconsin and Illinois in a rural area. And he grew up in a black and Mexican household, but he was a goth teenager. So when I told uh-huh. him the title of your book, he was like, wait, is this a how-to? I so could have used that. And I just thought it was really <laughs> funny. <laughs> It's not a coffee table book. It's not an actual list. (laughs) Although the last story in some ways is, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he definitely grew up like the lone goth person that he knew. And it was like his parents trying to understand him listening to Morrissey was pretty funny. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. The title story of my book is actually based on something I did when I was 16 or 17. So I was raised by my grandparents, who I love dearly. And I also still have a very good relationship with my father. You know, my parents had me kind of young, so I lived with my grandparents all my life. And I still have a good relationship with them amazingly. But we had a rough time when I was a teenager because I was a goth, queer, witch, and they were Southern Baptists. So I was made to go to church three days a week all of my life. And I stopped wanting to go when I was around 15. I really hated it because it was a very conservative church. And the preacher would compare homosexuals to like child molesters and murderers. And um, I just hated it. It felt psychologically like traumatic to go Mm -hmm. there. And I began, I guess, rebelling is the word, rioting, revolting. On Wednesday night, Mm -hmm. there was a Bible study. And like every like 12th week, because there were 12 people in the church, was like my week to pick the text and read it aloud in front of the church, in front of the congregation on Wednesday night. And then we would all discuss the text. So When I was a teenager and had really started hating the church, I would dress extra goth on Wednesday nights, like draw upside down crosses under my eyes and do the white face paint and put on my bowler and just come looking like Marilyn Manson or something. And um, I would read from Ezekiel and I would find like the darkest, most goth text to read and I would read it to them (laughs) and scare them with their Bible, you know? Yes. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. So I was only able to read your first short story in the collection, which is titled How to Stop Smoking in 19,287 Seconds, Usama. (laughs) And sorry, I'm laughing and you should laugh too if you read this story. (laughs) I meant to read more of them before this call, but you know how things go and it's been a crazy week. But anyways... Your writing style is very interesting, and particularly the way that you name characters in this story felt really unique. And I was curious to whether or not you have specific influences on your writing style. I think that 
just writers that I've read obsessively probably influence my style. And this story in particular, I think probably some of the ways that Richard Brodigan writes influenced maybe not even necessarily the prose, but the way that the story unfolded. Because he has a way of sort of taking, you know, just sort of sprinkling a metaphor into sentences. And you think it's a metaphor and then it just becomes the reality of the story. Yes. I think he has a whole few sentences about the Digger Indians. And he's like, everyone, he's like, every, all the white people in the area said the Digger Indians didn't have any morals or ethics. And then he's, and then he makes, a, and it seems like, oh, a kind of a racist joke that, you know, he's referencing the racist jokes. He's like saying like, they didn't like cook their food or wear any clothes. And then right. he goes on to say they didn't like give birth to their children or bury their dead. They didn't eat. And it, and then mm-hmm. it becomes this whole like impossible scenario that then becomes kind of real in the story. Right. You think it's an exaggeration, but then it becomes the reality. Right. Yeah. yeah. So this story is about the day Osama bin Laden was assassinated. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> being in the rural U.S. at the time and being around a bunch of people who have claimed to see UFOs in the woods. You know, there's some references to the couch being so moldy it could start talking and float around and, you know, what what these UFOs are and, and then all this weirdness around how people are reacting to Obama having been the one to kill this person they've hated more than anyone. Yes. <laughs> but maybe not more than Obama in the way they start right. reacting to that. <laughs> right, right. <Yep. laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. And even just the way like the like author the author voice with the narrator. The story. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Jesus. Um <laughs> the fucking narrator. Um she she talks about having this like alien in her chest and you think it's just because she's like chain smoking all these cigarettes and she's like yeah I'm just feeding the alien in my chest and then it gets to a point you know where that where you're (laughs) like okay is this real now I don't know what's happening right she's got such a bad like chest cold that she's like feels like there's an a goddamn alien in there growling and you think okay that's just some kind of hyperbole right but yeah so I try to extend then this story becomes very sci-fi and it's actually the most autobiographical piece in the book, but it's also one of the two very sci-fi stories in the book because I just extend when you're in like the country too, in rural America and in a very small town in the dark, it does start to feel like all of these kind of fantastical things are possible. And I have had some actually fantastical experiences there. So I just, it's kind of, I almost, it's not really Southern Gothic, but it's kind of like Gothic, Southern, like sci-fi realism, magical realism that's happening yes. in this story. Yeah. Yes. I was just going to ask, because this piece in particular, you know, you combine all these splashes of sci-fi current events and class awareness, because you speak a lot about class, and you just weave them together really flawlessly. And I've been interested lately, particularly in light of this episode, on the role of sci-fi and the ability for sci-fi to comment on political and current moments. And can you just kind of describe maybe, I don't know if it's like your process or kind of how that even came to be. I know you just did in some ways, but like, I guess elaborate on how the sci-fi end of it kind of came into that more autobiographical story. Right. So yeah, a lot of my work is about really, really poor people, people who are homeless or couch surfing, like that level of poverty, not even the working class Mm -hmm. or the non-working class Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and the working poor and the lower middle class. And once again, I, I just think of so many events in my life where I've been in these bizarre situations in these areas and it almost feels like it is sci-fi that's really happening or that magical realism is really like occurring in front of me. Like for instance, when I was a kid, on my mom's side of the family, who is the poor side of the family, I had um, a friend who took me to her house and we were playing in the trailer and I went out on the porch and I heard this growling just on, and it's this tiny wooden porch. And I heard this growling coming from under the porch. And I said, what's that? She said, daddy caught a wolf. We're raising it. And she just lifted up a couple of the boards on the porch and a wolf was underneath the porch through this mesh just glaring <laughs> up at me. I was like nine years old. And I remember that. And I'm just, you know, it's things like this. It's like if I wrote this in a story, it'd be magical realism, but it really happened. Right, um, right. So it's that sort of feeling. <laughs> There's a wolf in the porch. So it's that sort of feeling that kind of when I'm writing specifically about, and this story was a very hard story. And I will say most of the stories in the book are just straightforward realism. 
Mm-hmm. There are two that are very sci-fi. This is one of them, but it didn't really seem like a huge departure from the reality <laughs> even of the night I was writing about. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I also quickly wanted to talk about the use of the word faggot in this piece. So the storytelling character describes herself in this derogatory way like over and over again. And I was just curious as to why you chose to do that. So growing up in the rural Midwest in school, I was actually called a faggot quite a bit. They never used the word dyke. I don't know if they really knew it. Um, They did call me a lesbian. And when they really wanted to make me mad, which I don't know why, or when they were really angry, they would call me a faggot. Mm. Um, So I definitely use the word fag kind of lovingly about myself and sometimes others unless they don't want to be. And I think anytime that you reclaim a word, there is a reference to the fact that someone has used it against you in a derogatory manner. Yes. I think it's always a little bit sarcastic and it's always referencing that, yes, this is derogatory and we're almost making fun of the people who have called us that. Yes. So there's that element of it in this story. But in this story, the character comes to the strange realization So this story, part of it is she's sitting with, and you said the naming is interesting, her little, little brother, which is her younger of her two little brothers, Mm -hmm. and a cousin who is her not cousin because they all have different dads. It's only related to one of her little brothers. And they're talking about him possibly going, the not cousin possibly going to jail um, on this really trumped up charge. And he's hiding out from the police and you know, they're both very poor, they don't have jobs, and they've both been in and out of jail. And she starts to say things to them, like, call the ACLU, get a lawyer. And then she, you know, realizes that what she's saying, Mm. she describes it as being faggoty. Mm. And she's starting to use that term to herself in a derogatory way. Like, actually, this is really like New York faggoty ideas. And she starts to think about the fact that the only reason she left is because she was pushed out because she's gay that they actually ran her out of town and she starts to realize that her and she calls them through this huge metaphor her feathers of faggotry and she starts to realize that her faggotry is actually was a site of her oppression but is also a privilege she has Mm -hmm. because it's allowed her to Mm -hmm. leave and to run in different circles and to class climb right right so it's a complicated reason that I decided to use that but it's both derogatory and a reclamation and something else entirely yeah absolutely So we know a little bit about your political beliefs from our conversation so far. Uh, Anything else you'd like to add? And also curious as an author, how you feel about speaking publicly about your political beliefs? I'm happy to speak publicly about my political beliefs. I think everyone should be. um, Everyone is a political person, whether they know it or not. Even saying I'm not political is a political act. Mm -hmm. Um, I do hope that my writing is not horribly didactic so a lot of these stories aren't necessarily overtly political though two of them are very much I think especially a new mohawk which is about Palestine and Israel and a man who has the Gaza Strip appear on his head so that's the other sci-fi story in the book I don't necessarily think that my politics always have to be overtly present in my art or even at all. Art can also be about aesthetic or about creating something outside of politics. But I'm very happy to speak about my political beliefs as an author, and I wish more artists would. Mm. I was just thinking about all of these people who want to consume, like even sports players, the you know white conservative people want to be able to consume entertainment they want to be able to listen to like black singers or queer singers or go to a broadway play where there are a lot of leftists and homosexuals and just be like entertain me like don't say anything about your politics that's not necessary they really want to consume what they like of the person and to sort of cut away the rest and i think we should make that very uncomfortable for them to do and if not impossible um, Mm -hmm. because they really should know if they're trying to take away our rights that we are not going to sing and dance for their entertainment at the same time they're doing this without making Mm -hmm. them very aware of who we are. Right. So in closing, we would love for you to share a bit of your work here. Is there something you'd like to read? Yeah, I'm actually going to read a section from the first story, which we've spoken about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yay. So this is called How to Stop Smoking in 19,287 Seconds, Usama, 
which is Osama bin Laden spelled with a U, which is how they began um, spelling it the day that Osama bin Laden was assassinated. And I I thought it was really an interesting sort of, it was sort of a subliminal Mm -hmm. message because it's actually (laughs) U-S-A-M-A now, as if he is owned by the U.S. (laughs) So... (laughs) The narrator has just come in where I'm starting in the story has just come from meeting with her little brother as who she referred to as little little and her, you know, her older brother's cousin or her older little brother's cousin, big little. And she's found out that he's wanted for manslaughter and hiding out from the police because his ex-girlfriend texted him several messages saying she was going to kill herself and he didn't respond and she was killing herself because he broke up with her and then she did. So not reporting that and the fact that they're trying to say he may have caused it is they're trying to get him for manslaughter too. But he's also a very poor kid who's already on probation and just not really liked around the town. So she's just left this horrible scene at this trailer and has gone. She's visiting home from New York City, which is a small town in the middle of nowhere. And she's going to meet her friend from high school at this bar and is just pretty strung out at this point and has been chain smoking nonstop. So... And she's also just found out via the radio that Osama bin Laden has been killed. So here we go. That's a lot of setup, but (laughs) I'm going into it. The bar was permanently stuck in the late 70s in the best way. Everything was black leather and red paint. A mirror made up the wall behind the bar, reflecting bottles of spirits. Smoke hung in the air, although it's no longer legal to smoke inside in Illinois. Chubby's owner was a real rebel. The three people sitting inside hushed and turned as I entered. They stared at me blankly, not quite like I was a green, gaseous alien orb, but as if watching to see if I might turn into one. I guess they weren't used to seeing chicks in ties and vests with psychobilly faux hawks around there. Weird little faggot I was. The staring lasted and lasted. Even as I perched myself on a bar stool and tried to act casual, Just a person wanting a drink in a bar, the staring went on. Excuse me, can I get a whiskey neat with a seltzer backer? The female bartender who was now standing in front of me stared even harder. Huh? What do you say? A whiskey with nothing in it and a soda water, a seltzer, separate, I tried again. You just want me to pour you whiskey in a cup, she said angrily. Just like if you would do it on the rocks, but without the ice, I said timidly, almost as a question. This wasn't helping at all. I thought it was the simplest thing I could have ordered. Apparently, it was an alien libation. An old man in a ball cap and overalls nursed a Budweiser in the far corner. At a table near him, an old woman sat twirling a straw in a Coca-Cola can with what appeared to be the Bible open beside it. They were both still staring at me, too. However, you usually do it is fine, I kept on. I don't never do nothing like any of that. You want a soda? Water? You want that alone or in a different glass? I don't even have that. I might have some tonic in the back. You want tonic? I didn't give a shit about any of this. I just wanted to know if Osama bin Laden was really dead. But I had totally pissed off this bartender, and I didn't know how to unpiss her off. She looked like everybody's aunt. She was in her late 30s with clean, short blonde hair and generally appeared to be a legal, sane, normal person. But boy, had my drink selection pissed her off. It's fine. I'll just take a whiskey and a regular water. She filled up a glass of water and set it in front of me clankingly. Then she got a pint glass and headed for the whiskey. Oh, that's, yeah, um, that's too big. I mean, I tried to make it a joke. I can't hold my liquor that good. Ha, I mean, I'm not a drunk, but she was now still holding the whiskey and pint glass glaring at me. How big a cup do you want? I pointed to a regular tumbler. If it's possible to point with embarrassment, that's what I did. She grabbed the tumbler and slammed it down in front of me. Why don't you just tell me when? She started pouring. I told her when. She stopped. I got at my wallet. She stepped back and chewed on her bottom lips, staring at the glass, then shook her head no. I don't know how much to charge for that, she said aggressively, as of asking me for an answer. I heard the old man humph loudly in my direction. 
Then, thank God, the door opened behind me and my old buddy from my teenage years, Jessica, stepped in. Hey there, she squealed, smiling the bright, perpetual smile of the kind of optimistic lady who can bounce into any bar in the southern rural Midwest without everyone turning to stare at her. She hugged me and set her pleasantly plump self down next to me. Hey there, how you doing? She asked the bartender. Just fine. What can I get you to drink? The bartender asked, still suspicious but seeming to thaw. I'll have a hot cherry bomb if it's not too much trouble, Jessica chirped. Coming right up, the bartender chirped back, very happy about knowing what someone meant again. Then she proceeded to mix cayenne pepper, lime juice, Dr. Pepper, vodka, and Red Bull in a pint glass, topping off the concoction with two cherries and a straw. Easy as pie. Hot cherry bomb. Sure, why not? That'll be $4. (laughs) Really, I thought? Are these people fucking with me? The bartender eyed my drink a little friendlier now. It was like magic. I had a translator. I guess yours will be three fifty. That sound fair? Oh, fine by me. I laid my money on the bar and took out my cigarettes. You can smoke in here, I told Jessica. She smiled and nodded. I lit up and sipped my whiskey. I wasn't being stared down anymore and could finally pay attention to something besides my drink order. The television above the bar showed what appeared to be hundreds of frat boys waving American flags. The bartender noticed me watching. They got him. Can you believe it? I just heard before I came in. Where have you been? Jessica asked. It happened hours ago. I'll turn it up. The bartender went to the TV and turned the volume on. The news anchor just kept repeating, Osama bin Laden is dead in slightly different ways each time. Sometimes they said, Osama bin Laden has been taken out. Sometimes they said, Osama bin Laden was successfully killed by SEAL Team 6. And sometimes they said, Barack Obama is dead. I'm sorry, I mean Osama. It was Fox News they were watching. Everyone in the bar was staring intently at the screen, but no one seemed very happy about it. They looked much happier in New York City, where the world's largest and most morbid tailgate party had suddenly erupted at ground zero. I read the words scrolling across the bottom of the screen. Osama bin Laden is dead. I humphed. Jesus, they can't even spell it right. Bin Laden's face popped up like a hungry, hungry hippo, then... The thin, wrinkled old lady with the coke popped up like a hungry, hungry hippo as well, right off her bar stool and growled. You're dead now, motherfucker. We gotcha, motherfucker. Calm down, Iris. The bartender smacked the counter. Iris went back into the pond. I really like this place, Jessica chirped. It's weird in here. She smiled big and giggled. I'll have to come back again sometime. She looked around herself. It's like another world in here. Jessica grew up two towns away in a bigger town. Chubby's was my hometown bar. Barack Obama has successfully killed Osama bin Laden, the news anchor said. Obama didn't kill him, the old man at the bar muttered at no one and everyone. The SEALs killed him. He looked disgusted like he'd just vomited in his mouth. Obama, he sneered. I'm glad he's dead anyway. We can all rest a little easier now, the bartender told us. What's your name, Jessica asked sweetly. Donna. Jessica introduced herself to me and me to Donna, the bartender. Where are you from, Donna asked. She lives in New York City, Jessica told her proudly. I guess that question was mostly directed at me. New York City, well then, you must be more excited about this than anyone, Donna told me. I kept watching the TV. They're spelling it wrong, I repeated. Look, Donna turned and looked. Well, how about that? They're spelling Osama with a U. Is that right? Is it an alternate way or something? No, I don't think so. Osama bin Laden is dead, the news anchor repeated, and I couldn't help but notice she was pronouncing it by the new spelling. I extinguished my cigarette in the black ashtray. I don't think it's a mistake, I told them. Jessica smiled big at me. It's on purpose, see? It's U-S-A-M-A. They're doing it on purpose. They're renaming it like he's now property of the USA. Get it? Osama? I'm not really a political person, Jessica said, shrugging and smiling. But Donna was listening and looking incredulously at the screen. That is weird, she concurred. I haven't seen you in years. Tell me everything, Jessica said, changing the subject. I've had about enough about that myself. 
Donna muted the TV and headed over to the jukebox. In a minute, Travis Tritt was serenading us. Oh, tell me about New York City. Jessica smiled big and her, her perfect eye makeup sparkled. I want to know everything. I want to live vicariously through you. She leaned toward me excitedly. Her elbow bumped a cup that was sitting next to the ashtray. It fell over, spilling out a wad of cash and some change. I thought it was a tip jar, but as I put it back to its original position, I read the words scrawled on the side in black marker, donations for Chastity's funeral. Jessica and I stared at it. Her smile fell down so hard it scraped its knees and looked like it might not be skipping around again for a while. I grimaced. Oh, that's depressing. I slid the funeral donation jar far away, out of sight and mind. I lit up an another cigarette. When I exhaled, a noise came from my chest that sounded like Satan's dog with a throat infection. I started coughing. Jessica recoiled. That sounds really bad. Are you okay? I banged on my chest with my fist. It felt like I had an alien in there, and I didn't have Sigourney Weaver around to help me if it came out and decided to burst through my chest. I gasped for breath, hunched over, and grabbed Jessica's wrists. She jumped. Listen, Jesse, forget about New York City. I don't even remember New York City. There's something really weird happening around here, I whispered, and took up my desperate coughing again. Jessica stiffened. I held tighter. What do you mean, she asked, her voice shaking with confusion. I saw these things, these green things. I was out there in the woods tonight with this kid who's wanted for manslaughter, I whispered. Jessica's eyes got big and her eyebrows got all twisty. It's only second degree. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. Like I was saying, I saw these things. Jessica was looking at me like I was crazy. I tried to figure out how to proceed. Someone touched my shoulder, softly tapping. I turned to find Iris staring at me nearly nose to nose. The wrinkles around her eyes looked like a dried up beach. Um, can we help you? Jessica asked, trying to keep it cool. Iris's thin lips moved. The time is coming. I'll stop there. Yeah. Nice. It was so good. Thank you so much for doing that. Y'all have to go out and read the rest of it and the beginning because it's so good. Well, I guess that was a weird enough scene from a rural bar. Yes. So good. So good. Totally amazing. Thank you so much for reading it. Thank you for being on the show. It's been really cool to hear your thoughts on all of this and learn more about your work. Yeah. Um, if people want to get your books, how do they do that? Probably well, the internet. Yeah. The most recent book is Seven Stories is now an imprint of Random House. So it's through Seven Stories Press. And amazingly, they also did one of my favorite writers, Octavia Butler, Noam Chomsky. So they're a terrific press. They publish political nonfiction and some like socially relevant fi fiction. So it's distributed by Random House. So you can really get it in any bookstore in the country, in libraries. If they don't have it in your bookstore, they can order it. You can get it pretty much wherever books are sold on Kindle, at Powell's Books, or if you must, on Amazon. <laughs> yes yes well amazing we are so grateful this is a really unique way to end and I'm really pumped we're ending this way with that like amazing story so thank you again thanks for being on here thanks for teaching us about anarchism and <laughs> for generally like just being a brilliant writer oh thank you so much for having me and um I love that the show is feminist socialist and also creative thanks so much So as always, you can get in touch with us through Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. We're also on Facebook. We have a website, seasonofthebee.com. Um, you can always contact us at um, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Please send us your music. And we have new merch coming out. So yeah. please check that out and, and send in your pre-orders because... There's a lot of really cool stuff up there on the website. Um, you can always donate to our podcast and support us on Patreon. And rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Woo! <laughs> yeah! Yes. Thanks for listening to our sci-fi episode. <laughs> thanks! Yay! Bye! I love you.